The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Lonnie Simpson, is a chiropractic doctor and certified clinical bone densitometrist. She has practiced women's health care for 25 years and is an expert in bone density analysis, osteoporosis, and hormone balancing. Dr. Simpson co-founded the East Bay Menopause and PMS Center and the Osteoporosis Diagnostic Center in Oakland, California. And she's here today on Health Watch to talk about her new book, Dr. Lonnie's No-Nonsense Bone Health Guide. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Lonnie Simpson. Dr. Simpson, are you on the line? I sure am. Oh, good. I'm glad we got, we got you there. Uh, so in, in your book, uh, Dr. Lonnie's No-Nonsense Bone Health Guide, uh, one of the things that's interesting at the beginning is you, you make clear that an osteoporosis book or a bone health book isn't just for people who are elderly, but in fact that we actually make a lot of our, or most of our bone mass before we're 30, and then uh, the diet and lifestyle uh, of our lives prior to 30 is really showing us uh, how much of a risk we're going to have later in life. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, and that's exactly right. In fact, 80% of our lifetime bone mass is laid down by the time we're 18. So it's one of the reasons why I say this book is for anyone who has a skeleton, both men and women. We still have the ability to build more bone by the time we're 26 to 29, but after that point and the older we get, it's more difficult to build bone. You can build bone, and one of the things that I say throughout my book is that you can certainly build bone quality at any age, and we can get into what I mean by that in a minute. The other thing I want to say is that uh, usually people come to my book or come to me as a patient because they've been diagnosed with osteoporosis, including men. And uh, when I'm talking today, we still mostly think about women, but everything I'm saying about women is true for men too, but it happens about 10 years later. Well, well, before we talk about some of the interventions to improve bone quality later in life, what are some of the things that people who are under the age of 30 could do to uh, improve bone density and bone mass so that um, if they have a family history of osteoporosis, for instance, they could lower the, the possibility of it? Well, certainly it's having a really good diet. So typically what if we look at what a good diet is, it's the same for everything, whether we're talking about good heart health or anything else, which means getting the junk out of the diet, uh, getting the uh, high sugar foods, the processed carbohydrates, uh, eating real food, not skipping meals, making sure you're getting enough calcium, uh, calcium-rich foods, preferably, and it's a little tough with kids, you know, because they don't like anything green a lot of times. But, you know, the the uh, collard greens and kale loaded with, you know, calcium. So getting a, a, a bone-rich, uh, healthy nutrition program, I go into deeply in my book. And I and that's really the critical thing as, as children are growing up is making sure they're getting enough vitamin D. That's a big one. And I know you are up in Oregon there. Uh, vitamin D is something that is absolutely essential for bone because if we don't get enough vitamin D, Vitamin D actually increases calcium absorption by 50%. And what, what is the target level for vitamin D in the blood that you look for? I know that when I test people, 
in my practice, more often than not, people are low, but there's certainly some debate around what the target range should be. There is a lot of debate about this, and my happy zone is about 50 nanograms per milliliter. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm not in the camp that thinks everybody that you you as much as you take as much as as you want, get up your blood levels up to 100. But I do think a very reasonable amount for people to take is about 2,000 a day, particularly those of us in North America and the further north we are uh, because of the latitude that we, that you're at in Oregon, you have what we call vitamin D winter. So you can't make vitamin D from around at least November, maybe mid-October through March. So people tend to think that they can make vitamin D at any time, and they can't. And I have a short uh, free video on my website that describes how the sun works, but it's not just sunshine that makes vitamin D. It's a particular ray that makes vitamin D, and that's only out during certain times of the year and certain times of the day. At our latitude, you mean? Because I I believe if you lived on on the equator that you'd be able to make it all year round. That's right. That's right. So when the sun is at a slant, whether it's because of time of year or time of day, that particular ray, which is the UVB ray, does not get through sufficiently to make vitamin D on the through the through skin. Well, another really interesting part of, about the Bone Health Guide was you parsing apart the different types of exercise interventions. Uh, there's some confusion, I think, among people what is considered weight-bearing, and, and weight-bearing exercise is what we want to look for, for for improving bone density or preventing bone loss. So could you walk us through the difference between going on a walk or or exercising on the elliptical or biking and which ones are going to have an impact on bone health and which ones aren't? Well, one of the things we know for sure <clears throat> is that literally impact is good. So... When, and not everybody can do this. I can. I, I have osteoporosis, and that's partly what I'm trying to get across in my book. Is some people can do a very, with osteoporosis, can do a very strenuous exercise program like myself, where other people may have to do a very cautious program. So uh, anything that creates impact, jogging, jumping, I have on my website a, 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 a little video also on jumping or just even coming up on the toes and letting yourself drop to the heels coming up on the toes, drop to the heels. That creates a, an impact. So that's, that's really, really excellent. And one thing we also say is staying on your feet four hours a day, minimum. A lot of people are doing a lot of sitting, and that's one of the issues with kids too. They're not getting enough upright and sports and things like that for kids. But for adults too, there's a lot more sitting. So certainly being upright, going for walks, I prefer that to the elliptical because elliptical is, it's good exercise. I don't want to take that away from people if they're doing it, but, you know, because they may be doing that because they have problems with their knees or something. Um, but I prefer exercise when people can do it that is creating impact, jogging, uh, strength, you know, good hiking, getting out of breath. Again, what's good for the heart is good for the bones typically too. You want to have good aerobic capacity. But the other thing I say is if you want to, re- if you want to reduce your fracture risk, work on balance. Ninety percent of hip fractures occur because people fall. So I, the, the thing about balance, anyone can work on, including people who are older who may be challenged with knee problems, etc. 
And then a, another compounding factor for people in the latter years of their of their lives is a lot of those medications that people end up on can have lightheadedness or dizziness as a side effect. And that is, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we know when people are over-medicated, and I highly recommend people go through that with someone who's going to look at their entire case. And that's one of the problems I see in evaluation, whether we're looking at bone or anything else. People come to me, they've let her, some of them got have two binders full of tests that they've done and medications that they're taking. And, you know, you got to get someone who's going to go through all that with you, but also look at diet and exercise and digestion. And that's where my book is, I think, different from a lot of the other ones because in I don't, I don't care what kind of level, what level osteoporosis one may have or whether or not you want to prevent it. Gastrointestinal health is my core work with my patients. If, they don't, if they're having digestive problems, I want to get to the bottom of it. I don't want them taking Tums <laughs> and certainly don't want them taking Tums for calcium. So I want to correct that if it's at all possible, get them on a good diet, and then also, again, on that exercise program. And is that primarily because of the issue of potential malabsorption that you're looking at, the digestion is the central center of your bone health regimen? Yes, and thank you for clearing, clarifying that. So if somebody has digestive problems, particularly any digestive problems, a lot of burping and bloating, these are all examples of the digestive system isn't working right. Well, what is, what is our body telling us when we have these symptoms? It may be telling us that we might not be absorbing or all of our nutrients, that our food may not be, broke, be breaking down properly. And one of the worst signs is when people have loose stools, because when you increase the transit time of, from when you eat food and when it goes out of the body as loose stools, then you might not be absorbing the nutrients that you're taking in. So the stools are super important, and I talk to patients in depth about that because, you know, again, you have to have really healthy stools as well as you shouldn't be chronically feeling bloating and gas and things like that. And we have so many people on antacid or or proton pump inhibitors, and these are risk factors. Taking those drugs are risk factors for osteoporosis. And that's primarily through uh, reducing the effectiveness of, of absorption of our, our food because of the lower stomach acid? Yes, and uh, stomach acid has gotten a bad rap, don't you think? I mean, stomach acid, uh, what, is, what, what, what is it for? Well, it's for breaking down, it's first line of breaking down proteins. And it's also, it's also needed to get calcium into the system. And when we have that, the, the bowls of food bathed in that uh, hydrochloric acid, and that goes down into the small intestine and then it stimulates a more al- alkaline environment. So there's a whole lot of things that happen, and that's the way our bodies are designed to work. So when we interfere with that, with any kind of medications, um, we, we might run the risk of having a malabsorption kind of problem. And I'm not saying drugs, you know, if people read my book, I'm not saying drugs are the bad guys all the time or anything like that, but I am saying drugs are overused. And I am saying that quite often these problems of gastrointestinal things can be solved naturally. I do it all the time with patients, so I know it can be resolved naturally. We're talking today to Dr. Lonnie Simpson about her new book, Dr. Lonnie's No Nonsense Bone Health Guide. You're listening to Health Watch. Uh, Dr. Lonnie, um, 
you you talk some in the book about osteopenia that osteopenia the, the a milder form pre osteoporosis is ne- was never meant to be a disease and shouldn't be treated as such and and that that uh, sentiment is sort of outside conventional the conventional approach to osteopenia so can you talk a little bit about how you've come to the conclusion that uh, what's going on with osteopenia is is overboard well Actually, it's not that I've come to this conclusion. That's a fact. Uh, that they, the, the original uh, team that met in, uh, to determine where, okay, wh- what are we going to call these things? You know, osteoporosis, and at what level we're going to call it? And we're going to call it osteopenia at this level. Um, they meant that, that that was only meant as a research name at that time. But because it became a diagnosis, then medical doctors tend to treat that, and that's what happened early on. Uh, medical doctors were treating people with osteopenia. Osteopenia simply means low bone mass. And low bone mass can be pretty much normal bone mass for a person. So uh, to give you an example, when, uh, you're, when people are measured as to whether or not you have low bone mass or osteoporosis, you're measured up against an average 30-year-old. Well, 26 to 29, you're being exact. We're measured up against that normal group of people. Well, I have very small bones. So I'm going to come in on the lower end anyway to some degree. So the definition of low bone mass is 12% to 24% less bone mass than a 30-year-old. So let me just kind of try to simplify this a little bit. So let's say I have... I have a diagnosis of osteopenia, but it really comes in the range of only 12%. That's not a big deal. 24% would have my attention. I'm still not all freaked out about it with my patients. If I've got a young patient who's in her 50s or in her 60s, she has even borderline osteoporosis, no fractures, no risk factors for getting fractures. I'm not all that worked up about it. So you can have more advanced osteoporosis. You can have 40 to 50 to 60% less bone mass. That's when things get very scary for patients in terms of they can fracture more easily and so forth. So the diagnosis of osteopenia, and this is being now stated by the International Society of Bone Densitometry, they're preferring to use the term low bone mass instead of osteopenia so that medical doctors won't think that needs to necessarily be treated. Well, now, that said, low bone mass, let me just say this. If I did uh, bone density two years ago and I had borderline low bone density and then I could see they lost 7% and they're still in the range of low bone density, it's the losing of bone that I'm concerned about. And when anyone has one test, whether it's osteoporosis is the diagnosis or low bone mass or osteopenia, whatever that's called from that reporting doctor, it doesn't mean that bone loss is occurring. So, the diagnosis of osteoporosis does not necessarily mean the bone loss is occurring. I have to have two bone density tests done correctly to determine that or lab work to show me that bone loss is actively being lost. It may not have ever been gained because, remember, we talk, started this conversation with teenagers. So right. I have oste- yeah, so I have osteoporosis today because I did bad things as a teenager. So you could have one bad test, and essentially it could show uh, bone loss that happened a long time ago, but you're actually stable around your bone density now. That's right. And 
stable is really important to know. Now, it still doesn't mean that that person doesn't need to be aggressively treated with, and I say that with, with uh, you know, nutrition and things like that, because that's where nutrition becomes medicine. Um, well, I always see it as medicine. And it doesn't even mean that someone might not need medications. But active bone loss is a different ball game. And then I go after, I want to find out why that bone loss is occurring. But if someone's only had one test, and their borderline osteoporosis and no active bone loss is occurring and they're 60 years old, they might, their risk factors, uh, you know, for a fracture right now is very slim. Well, well let's talk about the testing a little more, the, the bone density scans. Uh, you go into great detail, Dr. Simpson, about the DEXAs uh, or the hip bone density scans and, and the, the propensity for potential for human error and for inaccuracy between different types of machines. What are, what are some of the, the top points you have for people if they want to get an accurate result? Well, the best way to get an accurate result is if the people who, who run the, the imaging facility or who are working at the imaging facility have been trained. So believe it or not, they don't actually have to be trained. You know that they've been trained if they have a, a densitometrist that's reading the uh, the reports and providing the reports, uh, but also it's important for the person who is setting up the patient to have been actively trained, and not just by the uh, the company that makes the machine. So to give you an example, uh, if I put you on a table and don't rotate your hip correctly, and then I take you off the table, put you back on the table, and rotate your hip correctly, I can show a 7% loss in bone on, right now on that day. So it, it's important that the, that the technicians take time and it's important they set people up correctly. And there's also some inherent problem, you know, with machine error. This is true in all testing, by the way, even lab results. Sometimes I redo lab results if I think they might be wrong. I never base anything on one lab result. I've learned that. But the, uh, to ensure that you get, I go through my book, there's a long list of things to ensure that you get the most, the best that you can. And if you're questioning whether or not you've been, your tests have been done correctly, then you can go to the International Society of Bone Densitometry, and there may be some densitometrists on there. I'm one of them who can uh, look at them and see whether or not they've been done properly. Because when people are told they've lost bone, that can be a trigger for a medical doctor to prescribe medications, because that's the big concern. And what are some of the, the downsides of these medications? Uh, or, and how effective are they if, if people are put on bone-building medications? Well, there's different types of bone medications. The primary type of bone medication works, they're called anti-resorptives, or basically they keep your body from your bones from breaking down old bone, which is what your body's supposed to break down old bone and lay down new bone on a regular basis. That's what keeps our bones healthy. The, most of the medications out there that we hear about, uh, Fosmax, um, Boniva, Reclast, uh, all of this category of drugs of bisphosphonates or biphosphonates, depending on who you're listening to, uh, work by, by halting uh, those bone cells that get rid of old bone. These medications, I've come to realize, I used to be against all medications because I'm an alternative doctor, 
definitely uh, do work if they're u- work used properly, but the patients have to be followed and monitored to determine if it's having the correct uh, action in the bone. So I can follow that person with bone markers to determine if it, they're actually working in the first place. And before people start medications, they have to run a lot of tests, bone markers, 24-hour urine, a number of tests to make sure that that's right for them and then follow it to make sure that they're, it's doing the right thing. But the question is, is when are medications appropriate? And certainly if somebody's had fragility fractures, meaning low trauma fractures, um, they have advanced osteoporosis, uh, very thin bones, uh, you know, they should be, evalu- they should be evaluated as that the medications be part of that consideration. Forteo is another medication that, that's the only medication actually in our country that increases our own bone mass. Uh, and so that can be a good option for different people, but it's very different for different people. I have osteoporosis. I've yet to take a medication, um, but I feel comfortable with what the bone I have, the quality of the bone I have is good. Well, let's talk a little bit more about bone quality. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that um, later in life we can't really build bone mass, but we can improve bone quality. Uh, both, could you tell us what you mean by bone quality? And also, maybe we can talk the last few minutes of the show about uh, some of the supplements or minerals and vitamins you would recommend people take to help with bone quality. Okay. And uh, I do want to mention my website right now just so people can hear that. It's Lonnie, L-A-N-I, Simpson, S-I-M-P-S-O-N.com. Great. Um, so, yeah, qual- first let's talk if we get, we get the idea about bone strength. So brain, bone strength has to do with making sure we have good bone density. So clearly that's part of the picture of the overall bone strength. But there, beyond just bone density, there's also this business about bone quality, so, yes, bone density is part of bone quality, but beyond, there's bone quality beyond that. So, in other words, to give you a good example, there can be two people with the same exact bone density. One's fracturing easily, one isn't. What's the difference? Well, what they have isn't as good. Maybe they're smoking cigarettes. That's a very good example because smoking cigarettes is horrible for bone. Um, maybe they're not getting enough calcium or magnesium or vitamin D or maybe they're not getting enough protein, or maybe they're eating too much protein. All of these things affect the overall quality of the bone. Maybe they're eating too much sugar. There's so many things that impact the quality of the bone. There's also genetic factors for sure in all of this, but many genetic things will express themselves when, because of an environmental stimulus. So in other words, not eating right again, or smoking cigarettes or alcohol, for some people could have a huge impact, while for others it'll have less of an impact. So the quality of the bone, when I say some a, a bone has good quality, there's some flexibility to it. So when we're younger, we have typically, they, our bones don't break as easily. Now, as we get older, it's, and the older we get, building that bone quality becomes less efficient too. But what I can say is, is that when somebody's in their 80s and 90s, this is when we really have to eat a good diet as much as possible. And a lot of the older folks are just not getting the good nutrition that they need. And, and what are some of the recommendations you have around, say, calcium and magnesium and other, other things that people could take for bone quality in addition to the diet and lifestyle stuff we, we talked about? Well, again, it's, it's certainly 
getting a lot of vegetables and fruits and, you know, and leaning on the fruits that less sugar, you know, the berries and things like that. But um, I'm sorry, repeat the question. Oh, uh, if you could talk about what you typically recommend in terms of supplements for such as calcium and magnesium. Yeah, well, I want to make sure people, and I look at their diet first, uh, it depends on the patient, but if they have osteoporosis, I, I typically run between 1,000 and 1,500, depending on their digestive abilities and whether or not I think they have, you know, uh, they might be losing too much calcium. Uh, between 1,000 and 1,500 and some people 2,000 a day of calcium, but that's unusual. Um, and magnesium, I like to see at least a <clears throat> uh, 1 to 2, two ratio, meaning uh, a 2 to 1 ratio, meaning calcium, uh, say 1,000 and magnesium 500. But then it's important also, and I want to say this, with magnesium you've got to be careful because you want a good form of magnesium. Magnesium can cause loose stools. So adding magnesium can be great for people who are constipated, but for other people could be a problem. Magnesium glycinate, that's a form of magnesium, is going to not cause that as much as other forms. And don't get magnesium oxide uh, if, you're, if you're trying to build up your store of magnesium. And, and what about vitamin K? I know that's studied quite a bit in Japan around bone density, but it isn't really getting much attention here in the United States. Is, are you a proponent of using different analogs of vitamin K? Absolutely. You're hitting on all the great ones. Um, yeah, vitamin K is super important. Potassium is important for bone. Uh, but yeah, vitamin K2 and K2, well, vitamin K, there's K1 and then there's K2 and then there's two forms of that. There's MK4 and MK7. Um, and MK, both of those are good for bone, MK4 and MK7. Uh, the studies have mostly been done with MK4, which is actually a, a considered a medication at higher doses. Um, but MK7 is something I make sure all patients come. And naturally, the, the way that that uh, comes in nature and most abundantly is through natto, which is a fermented soy product out of Japan, and that most supplements are actually made from fermented natto or some, some other products are coming out fermented something else, you know, but it comes out from fermentation. Well, Dr. So there's, said- even, there's even some in uh, uh, sauerkraut. Oh, interesting. Well, Dr. Simpson, why don't you mention your website one last time before we finish today? Okay. It's uh, Dr. L- well, Lonnie, www.lonnie, L-A-N-I, Simpson, S-I-M-P-S-O-N.com. My book's available on my website and also at Amazon. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. Thank you so much. We're talking today to Dr. Lonnie Simpson about her new book, Dr. Lonnie's No-Nonsense Bone Health Guide. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.